I'm going to read from chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, that is Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask for your answers. What comes as part of the package of Christianity? For example, my wife and I bought a vehicle a couple years ago. And when you're looking for a car, you'll see an advertisement for a car. And it'll never just say Chrysler Caravan $20,000. It'll always have a list of things that come as a part of the package. It'll say Chrysler Caravan, 2008, power steering, power brakes, air, cruise. It'll have a list of things. What are some of the things that are a part of the package of Christianity? To get you started, when we become a Christian, God gives us his Holy Spirit. That's one. We become a part of the community of faith. That's two. So now your turn to answer. What are some things that are a part of the package of what it means to be a follower of of Christ. Some things that come to mind. Peace. God has promised peace to those who are his. Okay? Forgiveness. Love and forgiveness. That's right. Anything else? Part of the body. Purpose. That's right. Holiness. God is conforming us to the very likeness of his son. Boldness, sorry. Boldness and holiness, there you go. Boldness, that's right. How about sonship and daughtership? We become children of God. That's part of the package. How about the promise of God's presence with us all the time? There's all kinds of things that are a part of the package of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And they're all positive. They're all great things. They're all blessings. But one of the things that maybe we don't often think of but is a part of the package of being a follower of Christ, is persecution. This is what Jesus said to his followers in Mark chapter 10. He said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus names persecutions. Everyone who is a follower of Christ, he says, will receive, will get persecution, will get persecuted. Paul echoes that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 where he says in no uncertain terms, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted. Like, watch out, there's a possibility that you'll face persecution. Persecution is a part of the package. There is opposition inherent for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we can assume and expect persecution is that the dynamic that is at play in Christianity is a clash of kingdoms. That is what is going on in the world of Christianity. It's a clash of kingdoms. Jesus always talked in kingdom terms. Have you ever noticed that? He proclaimed the kingdom of God. 
He was the kingdom bringer. He taught about what the kingdom was like. And kingdoms are about lordship. They're about rule and reign. And so sin is not mistakes or dysfunction. Sin is rebellion against the lordship of God. And in Jesus' death, we have been saved from sin and according to Colossians chapter 1, set free from the dominion of darkness or kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son of God, the Son he loves. So this whole Christianity thing is a kingdom thing. There is a clash of kingdoms going on. And when you have a clash of kingdoms, a struggle for lordship, you can be guaranteed the reality, obviously, of opposition, of persecution. Now, we are in our Sunday mornings together. We're studying the book of Acts. And Acts itself, as a book, begins and ends with kingdom language. Jesus, for 40 days, talked to his followers about the kingdom of God, chapter 1, verse 3. And in chapter 28, the very last verse of the book, has the apostle Paul in prison proclaiming the kingdom. And so Acts is about the kingdom of God and the growth of the kingdom of God. And when, when Acts describes this advance of God's kingdom and this pushing back of the kingdom of darkness, it talks about it in terms of the, what Acts calls the increase of the word of God and with that, the growth of the church. And let me show that to you very quickly. Um, Acts is about the increase or the progress of the word of God. Chapter 6 and verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And with that, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. In chapter, the end of chapter 12, after a season of persecution, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, chapter 19 and verse 20. So the word of God continued, the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. The author of Acts, Luke, has these phrases that thread throughout the book so that we know that the advance of the kingdom happens through the proclamation of the word of God, where the word of God goes forth with power, the kingdom of God increases. And how that happens by the proclamation of the word of God, the kingdom increases as people then are transformed, people are changed, people are saved, and then the church grows. And so Luke has lots of references to that in the book of Acts as well. Lots of references to there were added that day 3,000. The number grew to 5,000. The number of disciples increased uh, exceedingly. Multitudes of men and women were added to the Lord and so on. And so there's this power thing going on. The kingdom of God pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And there's resistance and there's opposition. And that same battle is going on today. God, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the church is still being built and we are a part of that. And therefore, we can expect opposition, persecution, enmity, and so on, even conflict. Now, so far in the book of Acts, everything is great. 
Jesus has ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has fallen on the followers of Christ. Peter preaches a powerful sermon declaring the lordship of Christ. 3,000 people get saved. We read the description of their life together, how wonderful it was. They loved each other. They cared for one another with generosity. Worship was a part of everything that they did. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to the reality of prayer, to the fellowship, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. And in chapter 3, we have Peter and John and the healing of the crippled man, an astonishing miracle then a crowd gathers and again Peter is preaching and the number of believers grows to 5,000 I mean so far the word of God the kingdom has advanced unimpeded and everything is just great there is a real honeymoon in the life of the early church and now suddenly we come to chapter 4 and here we see for the first time the inevitable persecution so this is the chapter that we want to look at together this morning uh, it begins with the religious leaders coming to Peter and John who are teaching the people and arresting them and putting them in prison overnight. These are the Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day. They had power, religiously speaking. And the thing about the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the possibility of resurrection. So they were all annoyed and anxious because the disciples were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead publicly in the temple. So they thought, well, we can't have that. So they go and arrest Peter and John and it's, it's late in the day, so they put them in prison overnight. But in the meantime, we hear that despite that, 5,000 people nonetheless, uh, the number of believers grew to 5,000. And then from there, the story has three movements. The first one begins the next morning. The next day, they get Peter and John out of the prison, along with the man who has been healed, and they bring them before the council, the Sanhedrin. This is the, the elder board. These are those who are giving leadership to the, the, Judeish, uh, the Judah, Jewish religion of the day. They're in charge of the temple. They have religious authority. And now Peter and John are standing before them for their interrogation. And we read who some of them are. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, do a couple of those names sound familiar to you? Annas, Caiaphas. These are the very men who just, maybe even just a few months before, had Jesus standing before them and had condemned him to death. And the high priestly family is there. Um, some historical trivia for you. In the last days of the state of Israel and the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, um, from, AD, from BC 6 to AD 70, Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas and four or five, I forget, of Annas' sons served as high priests in those years. So there's a real family power at play. So here is Annas and his family calling the disciples of Jesus before them, Peter and John. And they're going to grill them. They want to know what is, what is going on here. And so they ask the question, by what power or by what name did you do this thing? In other words, by what power did you bring about the healing of this man who has been crippled from birth, but now is healed. By what power did you do this? And 
Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, then begins to speak. And he doesn't talk for very long, but it's marvelous what he says and how he says it. And Jesus had actually promised that when the time came for them to speak before authorities, they wouldn't have to worry about what to say, but they would know what to say. Jesus in Matthew 10 said this to his disciples. When they deliver you over, in other words, kind of hand you over to the authorities, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And that's what happened. So Peter, filled with the spirit of the father, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches. It's short. It's about a minute. But in just a few sentences, he preaches the very same things that he preached about in chapter 2 at Pentecost and preached in the temple in chapter 3 to the crowd. He talks about the death of Jesus. He reminds them of their own complicity in it. You know, Jesus, whom you crucified, talks about Jesus' resurrection, that God has raised him from the dead. He makes reference to Old Testament prophecy when he says the stone the builders rejected, that's from the Psalms. He talks about the fact that forgiveness, or in this case salvation, are in Christ and in Christ alone. I've said this every week in Acts, I think, so far, but whenever the apostles proclaimed Jesus, they proclaimed the same things. The basic gospel, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in accordance with the prophecy of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament scriptures, and the fact that salvation, forgiveness, is in Christ alone. Peter immediately begins speaking about Jesus. Because the ministry of the church then, and the ministry of the church now, is the proclamation of Jesus. Has always been, will always be, must always be. We proclaim Jesus. That is what we do. That is our call. That is our task. And a joyful, noble call it is. But we don't just proclaim Jesus generically. We proclaim, again, Jesus who died for sin was raised to life and that there is salvation in no one else. And that too becomes a catalyst, a trigger for persecution and resistance and opposition because Christianity is, by definition, an exclusive message. There is salvation in no one else, no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, is what Peter said. And in our world that, if it has any respect for Jesus at all, places him with an elite group of spiritual leaders and maybe even as first among equals. That is a hard message to hear because Jesus is not first among equals. He alone is the salvation of his people. Buddha and Muhammad need to be saved and I needed to be saved and we all need to be saved and salvation is through Jesus alone. That is the message of the church. And it's not just because Jesus was a more competent teacher than anyone else. It's because what Jesus said about himself, about being the, the son of God, having come from heaven, having the 
the eternity of people and the judgment of people entrusted into his hands. And having that truth ratified by God himself when he raised Jesus from the dead. It's on that basis that we believe and affirm that salvation is found in no one else. He wasn't just a better teacher. He wasn't just a more moral person. He was a son of God who gave his life for the sins of the world. And therefore, salvation is and can be in no one else. Christianity is a an exclusive, a centered in Jesus only gospel. And Peter, standing before the very men who had Jesus condemned to death, makes a point of saying even that, even in just a few sentences, he makes sure that they know that salvation is in no one else. And I'm struck when I read this by Peter's boldness. You remember when Peter was in the presence of these guys the last time, though he was in the courtyard and not on trial himself, that he quailed cowardly when even just a servant girl said, I'm identifying you with Jesus. Isn't that right? Aren't you one of his? And Peter in fear says, never heard of him. Three times he said, never heard of him, don't know what you're talking about. And now, a relatively short time later, standing now in the place where Jesus had stood with his life on the line, Peter says, let me make it clear to you that you had Jesus crucified. He has been raised and there is salvation in no one else. What a different Peter. What a different Peter this is. Transformed by the twin realities of the resurrection of Jesus, of which Peter was a witness, and the being filled with the very spirit of Christ. What boldness that conjured up, that gave to Peter. And so in the second act of the story, beginning at verse 13, they're struck by the boldness of Peter. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, verse 13, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They identified the, the courage of Peter and John and recognized that these two men had been with Jesus. And they made a link between those two things. And I wonder, can people tell that we have been with Jesus? Because we have been with Jesus. That is what the gift of the scripture is, and that's what the gift of prayer is, fellowship with the living God. We have the spirit of Christ who indwells those of us who are followers of Christ. So we, we have been with Jesus. The question is, can people tell? Are we allowing Christ to transform us in such a way that people see there is something different, that there's things they can point to and say, what is that? There's something different about you. And we can say, that's Jesus. Can people tell? Are there those things in our lives? And the Sanhedrin, the council, even in opposition to Peter and John, they said, you know, we've, we can't let this go further. But interestingly, we're told that they say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Isn't it interesting that they had the evidence right there, and they even acknowledged, we can't deny that there's something going on here. 
And yet even with that fruit standing right before them, they still chose to say, but whatever it is, we can't let it go on. I don't, don't confuse me with the facts. I don't care if there's proof standing right in front of me. We are hostile to Jesus. We've got to shut him down. And that reality happens in our world today as well, I think. That there is evidence for the reality of a God who is good. And again, not just speaking generally, but good evidence for the reality of Jesus as the Son of God who was raised from death. And yet in a world that is hardened against a God, there is the sense of, I still want nothing to do with it. I want to shut it down. I want to stamp it out. And that's what even these religious leaders have done. And they try to stamp it out with what Satan's first attack, I think, always is, is violence and threats. And when that fails, as we'll see in the book of Acts, he does different tactics. He tries to introduce hypocrisy, undermine from within. He tries to distract by issues that are not central. But here he starts with threats and violence. Verse 18, they bring Peter and John back in before them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then in verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go. They try to stamp it out just by threatening. If you continue to talk about Jesus, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. It's not going to be pretty. You're not going to like it. Just stop. Don't talk to anyone in this name anymore. And yet, I love Peter's response to this, Peter and John. In between those two references to their threats, Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Like, you're the religious leaders. You tell us. Do you think it would be right for us to disobey God in order to listen to you. We can't do that. And besides, even if it wasn't a matter of obedience, we can't help it. We're compelled internally to speak about what we have seen and heard. And I love that twofold reality that the twin compulsion for them to speak. We can't help it. But anyway, we have to. We want to be obedient to God. And I think those two things are at play for us too. We are called to proclaim the reality of Christ, but I hope that it's also true that we just can't help it. We have been changed so much that it just overflows and we gotta tell people about this Jesus Christ who has saved us and rescued us. John later in 1 John chapter one will say something, many years later, will say something very similar to this. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We're speaking out of experience. This is the Jesus whom we know. This is the Jesus who has transformed us, and we cannot help but proclaim him. And with that, and further threats, then Peter and John are released. And then we have the third chapter in the story. Peter and John go back to their people, to the followers of Christ, to their community, and report what has just happened to them. 
And it makes sense that they would do that. It's a warning, right? It's like, hey, guys, you know, the ones who had Jesus killed two months ago, three months ago, whenever, we're, in, we're on their radar now. Okay, we need to watch it. You need to know that we're now uh, in danger from them. And their response to that reality is to pray because they are devoted to prayer, right? That's what we read in the end of chapter 2. And they, in their prayer, they approach God in a manner that fits their situation. They address him not as loving father, but as sovereign Lord. Like, Lord, let's start by getting this straight. We know that you are in charge of all things. And then they talk about the fact that Jesus' own crucifixion was in line with what God, what God had determined would happen. So, Lord, we know that you are in control of all this. You prophesied this. You made it happen. Things are turning out exactly as you said it would. And so, in light of your sovereignty, now we are on the hook. And so, we pray. And what do they not pray? They don't pray, Lord, keep us safe. Please save the priests. Bring them on our side. Please protect us from the danger that we're in. No, what do they pray? They say, Lord, in light of this persecution, in light of the fact that our lives are in danger, it'd be easy for us to be fearful. So give us boldness. We don't want to stop proclaiming Jesus. We don't want to huddle in safety somewhere. We know that the world needs to know this. So give us boldness to stand in the face of persecution and opposition. We can't roll up our sleeves and be bold, O oh Lord. So would you give us boldness? We need your help in this. And as you give us the boldness of proclaiming the word concerning Jesus Christ, will you then... Affirm that word by acts of power. Do healing. Perform wonders and signs. So that when we proclaim Jesus and miracles are worked in the name of Jesus, that your truth will be heard with credibility and power. And you can be glorified through the name of your holy servant Jesus. We'll preach with your help. You show up and do what only you can do, and your kingdom will move forward, Lord. That is what we pray. Let us be bold in doing what you call us to do. And we as a church, we pray, right? We pray for the church. Many of you pray for Thornhill Baptist Church. Question is, what is it that we pray? We pray a lot of things that are right and good. We pray for joy. We pray for wisdom. Lord, guide us in the decisions that we make. When there's a time of hurt or crisis or we're wondering about our future, we pray, Lord, bless this church. And it's good to pray those things. But underneath all of that, I would suggest scripturally that the appropriate thing to pray before we pray anything else is, Oh, Lord, Give us boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus and will you act in power to change the lives of people through the proclamation of Jesus. This we pray. And with that, O oh Lord, let there be joy and wisdom and guidance and help. But make us bold and proclaim the name of Jesus. Not so that Thornhill will do well but so that Jesus will be glorified and through the glory of Jesus, the Son of God, God the Father, will be glorified.
I love how these guys pray in this situation. When things are about to, to be as bad as they can get, and it gets worse in the next chapter, I'll tell you that ahead of time, this is what they pray for boldness. And God loves that kind of prayer. And so what does he do? The place shakes. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. We as the people of Jesus face opposition in our day. We face persecution. And there is the persecution of the state. It's not explicitly dangerous or hostile. I expect that someday it will be. But there is a resistance from our culture against Jesus and against Christianity. But I think that our opposition also comes from other things that are far more subtle. Busyness, materialism. Laziness, distraction on finer points of theology. Other things that hinder our seeking first the kingdom of God and proclaiming the name of Jesus. I think our opposition tends to come from those kinds of things. But even there, our appropriate response is to pray for boldness and just for the reality of God to show up and glorify his servant Jesus through his people. And if this chapter tells us anything, it tells us this. In the face of opposition, the believer's response is to boldly proclaim Jesus and trust in God's sovereignty. Whatever's happening in your life in these days, God is sovereign over that as well. He knows your circumstances are in his hand and he's... He has either brought these circumstances to you or allowed them to happen, however you want to look at it. But these are in your life right now in alignment with God's perfect purpose for your life in order that Christ may be glorified in you. And so we trust even in opposition and hardship that God is sovereign. And in that, Lord, we pray, grant us boldness to proclaim your word concerning your son and servant, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.